0: O oh, Jesus, Master Carpenter of Nazareth, who on the cross through wooden nails has wrought man's full salvation, wield well thy tools in our hearts thy workshop, that we who come to thee rough-hewn may be fashioned into a truer beauty by thy hand, who with the Father and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns one God forever and ever. Amen. <laughs> Those of you who are joining us via the live stream, we've had some technical difficulties. We apologize if we cannot get all of the slides up there for you, you will get them posted to the website as soon as we can. But welcome back, uh, we've had quite a break um, as a consequence of Easter and the Bishop's visitation and the tea room, so we are just coming back and believe it or not, we're actually entering into the home stretch um, as we prepare to break for the summer. Uh, But we are returning today to Romans uh, chapter 3, so if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 3. Now, I've been asked um, if I could please, in two minutes or less, um, give an explanation of the difference. This has nothing to do with Romans, so those of you are watching online, I apologize. I'm going to just take a a little bit of a detour here for just a moment. I'm going to try to do it in two minutes or less. Can I please describe the main differences in terms of theology or doctrine between Anglicanism and Episcopalianism? Um, It's really not that difficult to do. Um, If you look at the two historically, um, they are one and the same. What has happened, however, is that I would say that the Episcopal Church, which, by the way, is an American denomination, part of the larger Anglican umbrella, The Episcopal Church departed from historic Anglican doctrine and faith. If you want to know what Anglicans believe and have believed historically, you just turn to the Book of Common Prayer, and in particular to the 39 Articles of Religion, and you can see what Anglicans have historically believed since the time of the English Reformation. The Episcopal Church began in the 20th century primarily to depart from many of the tenets of the Anglican tradition. So if you're asking me, what is the primary difference today between Anglicanism and Episcopalianism? It's what I've always said, and that is it's a, it's a matter of authority. It's a matter of authority, pure and simple. Don't let anybody say, well, it's all about human sexuality or it's about women's ordination or any of that sort of thing. It is not. It is about authority. Anglicans historically have always believed that the Holy Scriptures are the ultimate authority for the life of the Church, pure and simple, and that all of our doctrines, all of our beliefs flow out of Holy Scripture. Therefore, on matters where there is disagreement, the Holy Scriptures have the final authority. If the Scriptures are silent on a matter, Anglicans have traditionally appealed to tradition and to reason. Now, when I say tradition, I don't mean individual's traditions. I mean the long tradition of the Church Catholic. For example, in the time of the 17th century and the 16th century, there was a debate within the church as to what clergy should wear. Should we wear street clothes? Should we wear vestments, robes, that sort of thing? Well, if you're looking for an answer for that in Scripture, you're not going to find an answer for that. It's just not there. And so what happened was that you would have, the church argued, appeal to the tradition. What has been the tradition of, church, of Christians down through the centuries? And if tradition is silent on that, then you appeal to reason. But it's not individual reason. It's the collective reasoning of the church gathered together in synod, gathered together in convocation, praying for discernment, guidance from the Holy Spirit. But where the scriptures do address an issue, scriptures have the final authority. The Episcopal Church from about the 1960s on began to deviate from that And it began to say that the final authority on all matters of doctrine and faith is the general convention of the Episcopal Church. And that's where the difference really began. That's where we really began to part ways. So historically, they are one and the same. Most of us who are Anglicans today were Episcopalians at one point. So when people say, well, you know, you left the Episcopal Church, my answer is no, the Episcopal Church left mainline Christianity and Anglicanism. So in the words of Forrest Gump, that's all I have to say about that. So <laughs> now let's turn to something higher and greater. I know that that's on many people's mind in the wake of, you know, what's been happening recently and the lawsuit and all of that sort of thing. But uh, that's the primary difference. Historically, um, Episcopalians believed what the Anglican Church has always believed, but there's been a departure from that. So the real issue is authority. But since we do believe in the authority of the Scripture and we are studying Paul's epistle to the Romans, let's go ahead and see how we are to live under this word for us today. So we're in Romans chapter 3. We're in the heart of this great letter. Some would say that Romans chapter 3 is one of the two most important chapters in this entire epistle. The other one, of course, being Romans chapter 8, but Romans chapter 3 introduces us to Paul's great doctrine of justification. And that's what we're going to focus on, at least in part today. This great doctrine, which Luther said was the doctrine of the standing church. He says the church falls if justification falls. So let's go ahead and begin at verse 21, and we're going to go ahead and read through verse 26 today, and then we'll take a look at these verses in closer detail. Paul writes, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now since we've taken such a long break and we've sort of been out of practice for over a month when it comes to what Paul has been saying here in Romans, let me go ahead and make a quick review, because as you know, everything that Paul says is built upon what's gone before. Uh, These are not individual essays, in other words, in which Paul is saying, well, here's an essay on justification, and here's an essay on some other Christian doctrine. Paul is writing a letter to a church. And each chapter builds on what has gone before. So we're not going to understand Romans chapter 3 in isolation unless we put it in the context of what Paul has said up to this point. So just a brief review. In the first chapter of Romans, Paul sets forward what is the human problem. Paul makes it very clear, you and I have a problem. Every single individual has a problem, and that problem... The primary problem is the wrath of God. We'll come back to that in a moment. But that's the... Without exception, male, female, black, white, rich, poor, Jew, Gentile, we are all under the wrath of God. And we're under the wrath of God, he says, because men have suppressed the truth. They're not ignorant of the truth. They have suppressed the truth. And they, he says, have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They have turned to worshiping created things, and that can mean worshiping yourself rather than worshiping the creator. And the consequence of this, this consequence of wanting to go and do our own thing and worship the creation rather than the creator, is that God hands us over. He hands us over to do what ought not to be done. In other words, God lets us have our own way. I think I've said to you before, the worst thing that God can ever say to a person is, all right, do it your own way. Basically, we're faced with a choice. You can either do it God's way, or you can do it your own way. And believe me, the worst thing God can ever say to you, this is what you think you want, but the worst thing that God can ever say to an individual is, okay, have it your own way. But that's what he does. And Paul says, as a result, the race has embarked on a downward spiral, going from bad to worse. And you know you've hit the bottom of that downward spiral when the things that God calls good we call evil, and the things that God calls evil we applaud and celebrate as good. And that is basically where the culture is today. Now, in Romans chapter 2, given that that's the human condition and that's the situation, in Romans chapter 2, what Paul says is that, therefore, no one has an excuse. We all stand condemned before God, every single one of us. And furthermore, there is nothing that we can do to amend the situation. The law says we all stand equally condemned. When you get to Romans chapter 3, Paul asks a rhetorical question. Well, then what advantage does the Jew have? I mean, obviously the Jews were supposed to be God's chosen people, and Paul says they do have advantages, but the reality is that those advantages are not enough to bring them back into God's good graces. It's not enough to undo what has already been done. So when you get to where we are today, to chapter 3, verse 21 and following, you realize that the situation is very bleak. Man has turned his back on God. God has abandoned man. Mankind is on a downhill spiral. we have reached the bottom and try as we might. We cannot in any way amend our lives. We cannot in any way earn our way back into God's good graces. We all stand before the law condemned to death. It's about as bleak as it could possibly be, but God. And that's where the light begins to break through the clouds, but God. God does not leave us in this terrible predicament. Verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. In other words, When we hear that word righteousness, and we're going to come back to it again because it's vitally important to our understanding of Romans. But when we hear that word righteousness, what it basically means is to be in a right relationship with God. In the first three chapters of the epistle, Paul explains why we're not in a right relationship with God and how there's nothing that we can do to get into a right relationship with God. And unless we're in a right relationship with God, we are absolutely condemned. So it's a hopeless situation. But now he says, a righteousness. A right relationship is available, but it's because God makes peace with us, not because we are able to make peace with God. But now the righteousness of God, notice it's God's righteousness, not ours. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all Who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God, but all are justified by his grace, his undeserved, unearned favor. This is a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. So a change is now possible a change from wrath. To righteousness, a change from condemnation to justification, from bondage to freedom, from exclusion to participation. How does this change take place? Well, Paul says God provides a righteousness of his own, a righteousness that we do not have. It is a foreign righteousness. As the prophet says, no good thing dwells within us. This righteousness is grace precisely because it's not ours, and it's not deserved. The work of Christ's redemption, he says, is what makes this grace possible, and this righteousness becomes ours by faith. Now, there are a lot of very important words in there. We've looked at some of them already. Uh, We've looked, for example, at that word, redemption, We're going to look at the word justification. But before we do, we're going to look at another very important word, one that is perhaps foreign to many people today. And that is the word propitiation. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption we talked about what redemption is. It means to buy something back. It's the language of the marketplace. In the ancient world, it meant specifically buying back somebody who was in bondage, a slave. But then he goes on to say, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. What does that word propitiation mean? It's an important word. Literally mean propitiation. I'm sorry, I Obscuring the screen. The word propitiation literally means to appease or to pacify. That's what the word propitiation means. So, what Paul is saying is that Christ Jesus was put forward as a propitiation, as an appeasement to God. In other words, God's wrath is coming against us because we have decided to do our own thing. And what God has done is he has provided his son as an appeasement for that wrath. To pacify that judgment, that wrath. Now I say this is an unfamiliar word for us. What I really should say is that it is an unpopular word for us. We understand the notion of appeasing somebody or pacifying someone. But there are many people who find that very language in terms of God to be rather offensive for a couple of reasons. One, it sounds as though it is beneath the dignity of God, that that God needs to be pacified, that God somehow needs to be appeased in order to accept us. You know, when when somebody does you wrong, or you do somebody wrong, and you desire appeasement or pacification in order to renew the relationship, you think to yourself, that's, especially if you're the one that has to pacify the other individual, you think to yourself, you know, that's, that's rather petty. And sometimes that's the impression that we have. And so many people find this notion of propitiation, and that's one of the reasons why you'll notice in some modern translations, that word is not used. I don't know how many of you are reading from the New International Version right now, but it probably says an atoning sacrifice or a sacrifice of atonement. If you're reading out of the Revised Standard Version of the Bible, the translation is probably not propitiation, but expiation. Well, just hold on. Um, don't be in any doubt as to whether I would leave you in the dark. But the point is that many translations do not use that word propitiation for this very reason. They find that language to be offensive. Furthermore, some people find it to be inconsistent with the nature of God, not just as though it's beneath the dignity of God, but somehow it just doesn't seem to fit with the love of God. And when we talk about the love of God and the mercy of God and the grace of God and this whole notion of having to pacify God or appease God's wrath, well, that just doesn't seem to fit with the love of God. And so we say, well, that can't be the idea that Paul is suggesting here. That those two notions, the love of God, the wrath of God, the mercy of God, and the need to appease God's wrath, well, those things are inconsistent. The only problem, of course, is that the Bible says that God is a God of love, and he is a God of wrath. The Bible says God is merciful, but it also says that his wrath and his justice must be appeased. Uh, There was a well-known Cambridge scholar by the name of C.H. Dodd, who is responsible for the modern translations. Dodd hated this idea. He was a very influential New Testament scholar in the mid-20th century, early part of the 20th century. He hated that term, propitiation. He hated the idea of a God who needed to be pacified. And because he was a very influential scholar at the time that the Revised Standard Version of the Bible was being published... He argued against the use of that term propitiation and instead advocated for the word expiation. The word propitiation, as I said, means pacified. Literally, it means to turn aside wrath. It means to turn aside wrath. And he didn't like that idea of a wrathful God, and so he argued for the word expiation, which means covering. Jesus is set forth not as one who turns aside the wrath of God, but rather as one who covers our sins. Now, it is true that Jesus, by his death upon the cross, deals with our sin. He washes our sin away. As the old hymn says, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stain. That's absolutely true. Though our sins are as scarlet, they become as white as snow as a result of Christ's blood. But that's not the idea that Paul is using here. But Dodd preferred expiation to propitiation, and so he argued that that's how it should be translated, and that's how it's come down to us in some modern translations. You can always remember C.H. Dodd because of a little limerick. You think of somebody having that much influence to actually change the meaning of words in a translation. That's a very influential person. Somebody once wrote, I find it exceedingly odd that a Cambridge professor named Dodd Spells his name, if you please, with two D's when one is sufficient for God. Maybe it's because C.H. Dodd felt that he was God and he had the, uh, the authority to go ahead and change the meaning of the words. But that is what has happened. But that is not what Paul means. Paul uses the word propitiation. This is not the only place, incidentally, that it's used in the New Testament. So somebody's asked the question, well, what does the word propitiation mean? Well, again, it means to pacify. It means to turn aside the wrath of God. And if you think about it, it makes perfect sense because Paul, through the first three chapters of this epistle, has made it very clear that's our primary problem. Our primary problem is the wrath of God. Now, you think to ourselves, well, our primary problem is sin. Well, yes, But if God were to ignore our sin, that wouldn't be a problem. The problem is that God doesn't ignore our sin. The problem is that his wrath is enraged against our sin. So our real problem is not just our sin. It's the consequences of our sin, which is the wrath of God. So that is our primary problem. There are two points to remember when we're dealing with with this word, propitiation. The first is this. God's wrath is not like the wrath of the pagan deities. That's one of the reasons why C.H. Dodd didn't like the word, because he knew that in primitive religions, there were many people who believed that the gods became angry and they had to somehow be satisfied. You know, if you were living on, on an island where there was an active volcano, you believed that the gods were angry and you had to somehow pacify the gods. And so, what did you do? Well, you took a virgin and you threw her down into the volcano to pacify the god. Or you gave up your children. This was one of the great sins of the Canaanites in the Old Testament, is that in order to satisfy their gods, they would sometimes sacrifice their children in order to mollify or satisfy the deity. So C.H. Dodd didn't like that idea because it sounded primitive. It sounded like a pagan notion. But it's important to understand that when we're talking about the wrath of God, we're not talking about the wrath of a pagan deity. We're talking about a God of justice. And I've said to you before, while we want a God of mercy and a God of grace, let's be honest, we also want a God of justice, don't we? Don't you want to know that all of the wrongs and the evils that are perpetrated in this life will one day be dealt with? I mean, it's hard to go to Europe and go through one of the concentration camps and look at what the Germans, or the Nazis, I should say, did to millions upon millions of people. And to think to yourself, they'll never be called to account for that. They'll, they'll never be a day of reckoning. There will never be justice for that sort of thing. I'll never forget, I got tickets to the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C. when it first opened. And um, that is a very moving experience. If you've ever had the opportunity to do it, you know, and if you haven't done it, I encourage you to do so. But I went the whole way through the museum and there are all kinds of images, all kinds of photographs, many of them very, very disturbing. I don't know if it's still there, I suppose it still is, but the room that really brought me to tears was the final room where you went in and it was filled with shoes thousands upon thousands of shoes of individuals who've been put in ovens or in gas chambers or had been used as scientific experiments. It just completely undid me. And you come out of that and you think to yourself, God, will there be justice? There has to be justice in the world. Well, that's what the wrath of God is all about. What we do know is that God is not indifferent To human pain, suffering, wickedness, and whatever is broken, whatever is wrong, whatever is foul, will one day be set right. But that cannot be unless there is a God of justice, and if there is a God of justice, there will be a God of wrath. It's as simple as that. So, two points to remember. God's wrath is not like the wrath of pagan deities. It is real And it is because God is a God of justice. Second thing to remember is this. We do not appease God's wrath. His wrath needs to be appeased. But we don't appease it by offering ourselves or offering our children or offering an innocent victim. The interesting thing is that God's wrath is pacified by God. Now, that's a completely different idea. It's not like the pagans where they take some innocent victim and throw them into the fire because actually there's no such thing as an innocent victim except for the fact that God provides an innocent victim. God pacifies his own wrath at his own expense. Now, let me give you an illustration of how this works. There's a powerful illustration of this in the Old Testament. It is the illustration of the Ark of the Covenant. You know that the Ark of the Covenant was that wooden box that was covered in gold in which the Ten Commandments were kept. The Ten Commandments that Moses had received on the mountain. Now, you know, when Moses came down from the mountain, what did he find? He found the people worshiping the golden calf. He'd just been given the Ten Commandments, the first of which is, you shall have no other gods before me. And there are the people worshiping the golden calf. They'd already broken the first commandment before they'd received them. And Moses, in anger, and as a symbol of what the people had done, threw down the tablets and they were broken. Well, the Ark of the Covenant, which was a symbol of God's presence with his people, was this box about a yard long, was carried by the Levites when they were in procession and was always in the center of the camp in that tabernacle, that tent of meeting. What was in the Ark of the Covenant? What was the primary thing kept in the Ark of the Covenant? Okay, not everything. That's all I want. There are a lot of things in there, Aaron's staff and all of that. But the primary thing that is in there is the Ten Commandments, the law of God, right? The law of God. Now, you'll notice from that image that this was a decorated box, and on the top were two figures, cherubim, angelic beings. Now, that area just above those wings, those outstretched wings that touched over the center of the box, was what was known as the mercy Seat, the mercy seat. And it was believed that God dwelt symbolically there above the wings of the cherubim. Now, when God looks down from his mercy seat, where he's dwelling with the angels and the archangels and the cherubim and the seraphim, what does he see? He sees the law that has been broken. He sees the commandments that had been given, that had been defiled. And every year on the Day of Atonement, the priest had to go in to the Holy of Holies, that centermost part of the tabernacle, into the presence of the Ark of the Covenant, where God dwelt symbolically there above the wings, on the mercy seat, above the broken commandments, and he would take the blood of a lamb on a hyssop branch, and he would sprinkle that blood on that area over the wings, on the mercy seat. Now that symbolized the fact that when God looked down, Instead of seeing, this is all symbol, but it's a very powerful symbol. When God looks down from his mercy seat, where he dwells with the angels and the archangels, instead of seeing the broken commandments, he sees blood. He sees the blood, which is the price that is paid for sin. The wages of sin is what? Death. And so what he sees is that blood. And that blood pacifies his wrath that otherwise would be enraged against those who have broken the commandment. So when the Jews enacted this over and over again, that's what it symbolized. It was a reminder to them that God is righteous and holy, and he will bring justice to the world. But it's also a reminder to them that they have broken the law. And if God's wrath comes against them, who could stand but blood has been shed. The price for sin has been paid. They are free to go. Now, of course, as you know, the Bible makes this very clear, the blood of animals is not the same thing as the blood of a human being. And that's why these sacrifices had to be offered over and over and over again to pacify the wrath of God. It's not as though God is indifferent to the sin or the broken commandments. It's just that he is willing to accept that sacrifice of death, which is the wages of sin, to cover over. Now, that's an illustration from the Old Testament. Let me give you a powerful illustration from the New Testament, from a somewhat unlikely source. It's one of Jesus' parables. Keep your finger there in Romans and turn, if you will, to Luke. Well, this is Luke chapter 18. You're familiar with the parable. I know you are. It's the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And what we're really going to focus on, and it's a brief story, we're going to focus on what is said by the tax collector. So Luke chapter 18, beginning at verse 9, Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. That's key. That's the context. This parable is told to those who trust in themselves, who think that they can somehow satisfy God's righteousness, that they can somehow by their own efforts or by their own goodness can somehow come into a right relationship with God. So that's why Jesus is telling this parable. If there's anybody out there that thinks to themselves, well, God loves me just as I am, simply by virtue of the fact that I'm a good person and that he's going to overlook any sin's or any mistakes that I have made in my life because, hey, I'm a likable person. Or if you're thinking to yourself, I'm not perfect, but I'm better than most. If that's what you're thinking, this parable is being told for you. All right? That's what Jesus says. This parable was told to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. How do you treat others with contempt when you say, well, I'm better than you? The minute you say, well, I'm not perfect, but I'm better than the vast majority, you're treating others with contempt. So if you're thinking that, I know you don't want to admit it, but if you're thinking it, this parable's for you. Jesus said, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and one a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. Now understand Pharisees, they get a bad rap today because we know that they were Jesus' primary opponents. But understand that in their own day, they were the religious conservatives. They were the evangelicals of their day, all right? These were church-going folk. These were respectable pillars of the community. They were the most highly respected individuals in Judaism in the first century. So just imagine the person that you think is the most highly respected, public figure, individual, church-going individual. You think that's a good person. That's a good person. That's what the Pharisees were regarded as. So there was a Pharisee, and he went into the temple, and he stood by himself and prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I'm not an extortioner. I'm not unjust. I'm not an adulterer or even like this tax collector. Now... Tax collectors were not well-liked in the first century. Heck, they're not well-liked in the 21st century, let's be honest. But tax collectors were viewed as collaborators. They were Jews, but they worked for the Romans, and they were notorious for being dishonest. They would go out and collect from an individual the taxes that were owed, but they would add on an amount which they would then pocket for themselves. Everybody hated tax collectors not only because they were thieves and robbers, but also because they worked for the pagans, for the Romans. So the contrast could not have been greater in Jesus' first century audience's mind. Here's a good, respectable individual, church-going individual, member of the vestry. And over here, we've got this person who is a low-down, dirty, rotten crook. And the respectable individual stands up and prays, Lord, I'm so thankful that I'm not an adulterer. And he wasn't. I'm thankful that I'm not unjust, that I'm not an extortioner, because tax collectors are. I'm so thankful I'm not like that fellow over there. I fast twice a week. How many of you do that? Fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Pledges paid on time. This is a respectable individual. But he goes on to say, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast, saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus said, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus said it was the unlikely individual, it was that dirty, rotten crook who went down to his house justified, which is to say in a right relationship with God, and we're going to come back to that term justification in a minute, but justified rather than the other guy who is the self-respecting, impressive, faithful, church-going member of the vestry. And you say, well, how is that possible? It's all possible because of the prayer that the second man uttered. It's a brief prayer. Really brief. You know, the Pharisees were known for long, eloquent, flowery prayers. His prayer is very brief. But I want you to notice how it starts. I want you to notice how it ends. And I want you to notice what comes in the middle. What's the first word? God. God. What's the last word? Sinner. There it is. There it is. That, that's the problem. That's the problem right there. There's God on the front end, and there's sinners on the back end. And what comes in the middle is what makes all the difference. What does he ask for in the middle? Mercy. God, sinners, And mercy between them equals justification. That has to be the way it is for you and for me. There is God, and then there's you and me, sinners. And unless there is mercy, what's in the middle of the other man's prayer? An attempt to justify himself. Lord, I'm so glad that I'm not like other men. I'm not an adulterer. I I, I fast twice a week. I give tithes. See, it's a piling up of all of the things that we have done and all the reasons why God ought to accept us. And what does it bring? Between God and the sinner, it brings judgment. The other man's prayer is quite the opposite there's God at the front end, there's a sinner at the back end, and there's mercy. Between, and that's what leads to a right relationship and to justification. Is that true for your life? Do you really see yourself as a sinner? You will never, ever understand the greatness of God, the love of God, the mercy of God, until you understand that you have broken his law, but he is willing if you ask for it, to have mercy on you. That is a powerful prayer. You know, some of the times it's the shortest prayers that are the most powerful and the most efficacious in Scripture. I think of that prayer that Peter uttered when he was sinking beneath the waves. Remember that story when they were out in the boat making their way to the other side of the lake? Jesus was not with them. He went up on the mountain to pray. And they got caught in that terrible storm, storms like that arise quite frequently on the Sea of Galilee because the Sea of Galilee is below sea level. And then you have these high mountains on both sides and Mount Hermon to the north, the Golan Heights over here to the east. And what happens is the, war, the cold air from those heights comes down and it meets with the warm subtropical air rising from the water surface and the results are often explosive. Even today, storms like that erupt on the Sea of Galilee with great violence, very unpredictable and it's very dangerous when it happens, especially for a small man-powered craft. And they're caught in this wave, they're in danger of sinking and we're told that Jesus came walking on the water to Peter and everybody thought that he was a ghost, some specter. I mean, wouldn't you, if you saw something moving towards you in the midst of a storm on the surface of the water? And Jesus cried out, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter said, if it's you, bid me come to you. And Jesus said, come. And we're told that Peter got out of the water or out of the boat and began walking on the water. And as long as he kept his eyes on Jesus, he was fine. But the minute That he looked not at the master of the circumstances, but the circumstances themselves, the wind and the waves, we're told he began to sink. And what was his prayer at that point? It was a very simple prayer. Lord, save me. Three words. And at that moment, Jesus reached down and pulled him into the boat. Sometimes it's the simple words, but it's the words that come from the heart that make all the difference. It's not the abundance of the words, my friends. It's the sincerity of the words that makes all the difference. And here was a man who said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said he was the one who went down to his house justified in the sight of God. May it be so for us. Between God dwelling there among the cherubim... And our sin, there must be mercy or there is no hope. So two powerful illustrations of what we have. Now let's go back to Romans, Romans chapter 3. So God put forward Jesus Christ as the propitiation. God satisfies his own wrath. God pacifies his own anger by giving his own son, who turns aside the wrath by his blood. This, Paul says, was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just, there's the justice, but also the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. Paul introduces us here really for the first time to that very important word, justification, or justify. It's no exaggeration to say this is perhaps the most important word in Paul's vocabulary here in Romans, justify, justification. It is the central theme of the gospel. If you're going to understand what Paul has to say here in Romans, you need to understand that term, that concept, justify. John Calvin said, justification is the main hinge on which salvation turns. Thomas Cranmer, principal architect of the Church of England, and the author of the Book of Common Prayer said, Justification is the strong rock and foundation of Christianity. Whosoever denieth this doctrine is not to be counted for a true Christian man, but for an adversary of Christ. Thomas Watson, who was a famous Puritan, said, Justification is the very hinge and pillar of Christianity. An error about justification is dangerous, like a defect in a foundation. And Martin Luther, no surprise here, said, when the article of justification has fallen, everything has fallen. This is the chief article from which all other doctrines have flowed. It alone begets, nourishes, builds, preserves, and defends the church of God. And without it, the church cannot exist for one hour. Now, that's very powerful language. But let me tell you something. It is no exaggeration. It's no exaggeration. Everything that those men said, Cranmer, Watson, Calvin, Luther, it's absolutely correct. Justification is the doctrine of the standing church. And if, doctrine, if that doctrine goes, the whole of Christianity goes along with it. Now, why is it no exaggeration? For this simple reason. Justification means to be in a right relationship with God. And as Paul has laid it out for us in these first three chapters, that is precisely our problem. We don't have a right relationship with God. But now he's saying there is a way for us to have a right relationship with God, and it is a result of God's mercy which is shown to us supremely in his sending Jesus Christ to be the propitiation for our sins, turning aside the wrath of God. Justification is the heart and soul of the gospel. It's the primary term that Paul uses for salvation. Now, we've seen a number of words that are used for salvation thus far in the epistle to the Romans. And there are a number of terms that are used throughout the New Testament. One of the words that we've already looked at in Romans chapter 3 is that word redemption. Paul says we have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. And we talked about what that means, to be bought back out of slavery. Certainly that is a precious word, to be redeemed. We refer to Jesus as our Redeemer. But are you aware of the fact that that word redemption is only used a handful of times in the New Testament? Only a handful of times. Another word that we just looked at is that word propitiation. Are you aware of the fact that that word propitiation, as important as it is, in terms of turning aside God's wrath, because wrath is our primary problem, that term propitiation is actually only used four times in the New Testament. Although we use it in the comfortable words, this is a true saying and worthy of all men to be received, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, to be a propitiation for our sins. Nevertheless, it's only used four times in the New Testament. Or the word reconciliation. We have been reconciled to God and we have been given what? The ministry of reconciliation. These are terms that we're very familiar with as Christians. This is part of our parlance, our language. And yet what's interesting is that word reconciliation is only found five times in the New Testament and only in the writings of the Apostle Paul. Now the concept is found elsewhere, but the word is only found five times in the whole New Testament, and it's only in the writings of Paul. But the word justification, the word justify, the references are overwhelming that word or forms of that word as an adjective or as a noun or as a verb is found over 200 times in the New Testament alone. So if you simply look at the sheer weight, the sheer numbers, what is the most important of all these words? I mean, redemption is precious to us, isn't it? We've been bought back. You've been bought with a price. Propitiation should be precious to us, God has turned aside his own wrath by sending his son. Reconciliation, that we were once far off and that we have been brought near. We were once aliens, but now we're part of the family. That is precious to us. But when you look at the sheer preponderance of the language, it should be clear to us that the most important term, at least as far as the apostle is concerned, is this word justify. Now that raises a question. Well, that is true. If justification is such an important concept, if the word justify is such an important term, why haven't we encountered it thus far in the epistle of the Romans? Why is this the first time that we hear that word justify being used? Well, actually, if you think about it, it's not. When you remember that the root of the word justify is a word that means to be made righteous or to be brought into a right relationship with God, then you begin to realize that's actually what Paul's been talking about all along. That's what the word justify means. I've told you this before. The illustration is if you're doing um, word processing on your computer and you uh, get to the bottom of the page and you look and you notice that your margins are not flush. You go and you black in the entire screen and you hit the Justify button, and what happens? Your margins go flush. They line up. Most of you probably, if you look at your Bible, the way your Bible is printed at the text, you'll notice that the margins are flush. Some lines are not shorter than other lines. They're flush. They're lined up. They're justified. Paul says that's what it means to be saved. That is what is required in order for us to get into heaven. That is what is necessary in order for us to be reconciled to God. We have to be lined up with God. We have to be justified. And that's what he's been talking about all along. Go back to Romans chapter 1, verse 17 for just a minute. He says, For in the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous, that is to say those who are lined up, those who are justified, shall live by faith. Romans chapter 3, verse 21, which we just read, says, but now the righteousness of God, the rightness of God, has been manifested apart from the law. Manifested where? In the person of Jesus Christ. So he talks about a right relationship with God at the beginning. He talks about a right relationship with God in chapter 3. And what is everything in between about? The fact that we are not in a right relationship with God. And how there's nothing that we can do to get into a right relationship with God. Unless God makes a way where there is no way. Now just as that language of redemption is the language of commerce, In the ancient world, slaves were bought and sold. They were a very precious commodity. And we talked about how we are slaves in the same way that a person became a slave in the ancient world, in an analogous analogous way. In the ancient world, you could either be born a slave, you become a slave by debt, or you become a slave by conquest. If your nation was conquered by another nation, you became the slaves of the conquering people. And we said the same way, we you and I are slaves. We are slaves to sin and to death. We're born into it. We're all O.S. positive, original sin positive. Isn't that what David says in Psalm 51? In my mother's womb, I was a sinner. We are slaves by conquest. Sin rules over our lives. The very things we want to do, we do not do. And the very things we hate, these are the things we find ourselves doing. And we're slaves by debt. That's why we say forgive us our debts or forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. So it's the language of commerce. And what God does is he comes into the marketplace. We had that wonderful illustration of Hosea buying his wife out of bondage. That's what God does for us. It's the language of commerce. That other word for salvation that Paul mentions, propitiation, that's the language of ancient religion. The need to pacify or satisfy the wrath of the deity. Well, in the same way, this language of justification is the language of the secular world as well as the religious world. It is the language of the courtroom. It is the language of a courtroom. Now, how does this work? That's what we want to look at. Sometimes the best way to illustrate some of these great doctrines is with a picture rather than just trying to explain it. So I'm going to try to give you a picture. This is sometimes referred to as the salvation triangle. All right, there are three points on the triangle. There's God the Father there at the top. Down on the right-hand corner, there is the Christian. And over on the left-hand corner, there is Jesus Christ. And you'll notice that each one of these lines on the triangle is an arrow. It helps us to understand how this whole process of propitiation, redemption, and justification works. Now, you'll notice that two of those arrows originate with Jesus Christ. What does Jesus do? He redeems the Christian. That's the line on the bottom. That's what Jesus does. He redeems us. He buys us back from the power of sin and death. How? Not a trick question. How does he do that? By By his death. That's right. He gives his life in exchange for our life, and he redeems us. But he's the innocent victim who pays the price that you and I deserve to pay, right? He takes our place. He becomes our substitute. And by becoming our substitute, he redeems us. Now, because he has redeemed us at the price of his own life, he has done something else he has propitiated the wrath of God. you see that other line on the left-hand side that's going up that says propitiation? So Jesus Christ does two things simultaneously. He redeems us by his death, and by his death, he also propitiates the wrath of God. And because we now have been redeemed from the power of sin and death, and God's wrath has been satisfied, God then, on the right side, justifies us us that is to say he brings us as a consequence of what christ has done into a relationship with himself now the thing to note about all of this is that the arrows always originate with jesus or with god not a single one of them originates with us and i don't know if that illustration is helpful but it gives you a sense of what has been done Christ redeems us and propitiates the wrath of God, and as a consequence, God justifies us. He brings us into a right relationship with himself. He declares us to be in a right relationship. Now, it's important that we understand this is a declared righteousness. God doesn't make us righteous. He declares us righteous. That's why I say it's the language of the courtroom. Sometimes we don't understand the difference between being declared and being acquitted. We assume that when the judge hands down a decision that somebody is innocent, he's saying that they're innocent of all wrongdoing. That is not necessarily the case. All the judge is doing, the person may be guilty of sin, actually. It's supposed to work that way, but it doesn't always work that way because human beings are human beings. What the judge does, though, when he drops the gavel and declares the person innocent, he's not saying that this is a pure person, that this is an innocent individual. What he's saying is that that person is not subject to the judgment of the law. As far as the law is concerned, the man or the woman is free to go. doesn't mean that he's declaring them to be perfect doesn't mean he's declaring them to be sinless, it simply means he's not under the judgment of the law. That is what God does with us. He's not saying that any of us are innocent. What he's saying is the price has been paid. It's sort of like getting a traffic citation, but much more serious, but you'll get the idea of the illustration. Let's say that my daughter, who's 17 years old, makes a right turn on red at the corner of broad and meeting. Now you can do that, but not between the hours of 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. And so if she does that, she's gonna get pulled over if a police officer's there and she's gonna get a ticket. Now, she has to appear in court. I go to court, there's a fine of $40. This has not happened, by the way, I'm just letting you know. Um, lest somebody come up to her and say, I understand that you turned. Um, She did not. But let's just say that happens, happened to one of her friends, as a matter of fact. But at any rate, she was in the car and um, they cried and it didn't help. So at any rate, she gets pulled over. We go to court. The judge says there's a price to be paid. And I pay the price. She doesn't. I pay the ticket. She, the judge says, free to go, justified, lined up with the law. Now, he's not saying she's innocent. He's not saying she didn't break the law. She did. What he's saying, however, is that because the fine, the price has been paid, she is now in a right relationship with the law. That is what has happened with us. We stand condemned. We have broken the law. And Jesus Christ, by his own shed blood, pays the price for our sin. And as a consequence, God, the judge of the universe, looks at us and says, you are justified. You are now in a right relationship with me. Not by virtue of what you have done, but because somebody has paid the debt that you owed. And that is why Paul says this is the most precious of all words. It's because that's our whole problem. We're not in a right relationship with God. Christianity is not just about checking things off the list. Real salvation, my friends, is about being in a right relationship with God. You've heard me say this so many times before. It's not about religion. It's about a relationship. It's about having a relationship with God in the same way that you have a relationship with your spouse or a relationship with your friend or a relationship with your children. It's not a cold and sterile thing. It's a living thing. But you know that if you have grieved somebody, if you've done somebody wrong, that imperils or impairs your relationship. And if you're guilty, what do you try to do? You try to make up for it. But the problem is we can't make up for what we have done to God. And so the relationship is irreparably damaged unless God makes peace with us. That is exactly what He has done in His Son, Jesus Christ. And now we are in a right relationship with Him. Think about that. Of all the relationships that you have... Could there ever be a more precious, more important relationship than a relationship with the creator of the heavens and the earth? Your creator, who knows you better than anybody else, who knows everything you've ever done, every impure thought you've ever had, and loves you in spite of it all, and loves you so much that he is not willing to overlook your sin, but he's willing to pay the price for your sin that you might be reconciled to him brought back into a right relationship with Him, lined up in terms of your relationship. That is a precious, precious thing. That's justification by grace, because it's undeserved and unearned, but it is a justification that you have to receive for yourself. You have to own this for yourself. You have to be willing to accept this free offer of grace and reconciliation. Some people don't want to be reconciled to God. They want to continue to run their own lives, do their own thing. But if you do want to be reconciled to God, you have to accept this, and it is accepted by faith. John Stott, in his book, The Cross of Christ, put it well. He says, the source of our justification is the grace of God. The ground of our justification is the work of Christ on the cross. The means of our justification by which we receive this reconciliation is by faith. And the effect of justification is that we are united with Christ for all eternity. And neither height nor depth, neither angels nor principalities, neither things present nor things to come, nor life nor death, nor anything else in all of creation will ever be able to separate you from the love of God which is now yours in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. It's the most precious thing in the world. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise that Jesus Christ came to be the propitiation for our sins, to turn aside your wrath, your judgment, your righteous indignation, We thank you that he redeemed us at countless cost, bought us back in the marketplace of sin and death, making it possible for you to justify us, to bring us back into our right hands, but beloved children, sons and daughters, and to recognize the value of our justification